0: We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M A X P O O L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode.
1: The legends are true! Overwhelming power! Sauce of destiny! Yes!
0: and participating McDonald's for limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, what's going on? What have you been doing recently? Uh,
1: I guess this could possibly be something that could be saved for the reading section. I'm not sure it quite applies, but I've been binging audiobooks uh, at the gym and i wanted something that uh was enjoyable goes down easy didn't require tons of intense scrutiny or concentration uh so i've been uh binging through the audiobooks of lee child the writer uh behind the jack reacher book series which you know which inspired the tom cruise movies and the uh amazon prime uh series of alan richton And I had read a few of these books already. I I, they were traditionally my airplane books. Remember that whenever I did an airplane trip for work, I would uh, read a Jack Reacher book. Uh, Because of COVID, I kind of fell behind on airplanes, Uh, so (laughs) I'd read one a little while. But I knew that they were enjoyable action thrillers that were pretty propulsive and just ridiculous enough. And I figured that they'd be good audiobooks. And it turns out that I was right. The audiobooks for the lead child Jack Reacher books are really fantastic and they are all narrated by uh, a reader so, uh, actor named dick hill and i want to talk about dick hill briefly this is the reason i wanted to talk about these is that i mean i don't need to say too much about the jack feature books at this point but think like, people have seen the tom cruise movies or they've seen the uh prime you know video uh tv series uh and they're both good like the, the first Reacher movie is i think extremely good the, the sequel not as much and the Prime series, I like the first season is great. Second season is pretty good. Um, high hopes for season three. They're, they're adapting the best book, uh, but I want to linger on Dick Hill, the the the, the, the narrator uh, slash reader, because I think he's my favorite Jack Reacher actor. Ben. Wow, that's kind of shocking, given the uh, the stature of the other two people who've played him. Yeah, I mean, people talk about Tom Cruise being too short to play Jack Reacher, who's written to be a six foot five, two hundred fifty pound bruiser of a man. But I think Tom Cruise gets the attitude right, uh, and Alan Richin on the Prime series has the physicality down. He like he like fills the frame. He's an utterly massive man, and but he makes choices uh, as an actor that they're not bad choices, but they're definitely not in my head how I would have read Jack Reacher speaking. Uh, Alan Ritchson's Reacher tends to speak very quickly, um, like a guy who's kind of in a rush um, and wants to get information out quickly. Or get things um moving quickly. He has a rapid statico to his dialogue. Uh whereas Dick Hill, the the uh veteran audiobook narrator, uh his take on Reacher is more laconic, very slowed down, a guy who's absolutely not in a rush. And what I find really impressive about his performance in these audiobooks is that he has a very distinct Jack Reacher voice. He breaks into a, into a voice when Jack Reacher speaks. Um I don't want. I guess I I I could compare it. to, You know, maybe sixty to seventies era Clint Eastwood in terms of like the the, the speed of the delivery. A guy, okay, not, interesting. A guy who's not in a rush. A guy who commands the room and makes sure that people are on his wavelength instantly. Um, and it's really impressive because in the the Jack Reacher books that are written in third person, you know, you can really hear him shift into the Reacher voice when Reacher speaks. But uh, every four or five books, uh, it's a a first person narrative. And in those ones, he reads the entire book in his Jack Reacher voice, which is (laughs) a really impressive feat, uh, you know, just to really sell how different uh, uh, his tone is when he's speaking as a character versus when he's narrating in a third person. And I want to really bring him up because I started looking up what else has he done. And. He's read all the Harry Bosch books for Michael Connolly. He's re- he's read all kinds of um, thrillers uh, and mystery novels. But he's also read uh, like the, the fa- fantasy books. So he he re- he read the Dragon Riders of Pern uh, series, uh, the fantasy series. Uh, he read he has audio version of 2001: A Space Odyssey from Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, he's recorded over a thousand audio books. Now, if I'm using if you hear me using this tense, it's because the past tense because uh, Dick Hill did pass away very recently. I think it was last year from cancer in his late 60s and he leaves behind this audiobook legacy and i i really enjoy lee child's books uh he has this very stripped down prose he writes action really well it's very tough guy uh macho you know action writing uh but it's really i think really exceptionally entertaining uh and uh, oftentimes very funny and uh just just smart enough uh, to keep you hooked and I would have enjoyed the books I've been listening to just fine, his books. Uh, but even author Lee Child has said that he thinks that Dick Hill helped transform Jack Reacher character into a you know much bigger deal than it would have been if he had just written him. And after having listened like eight books in a row, essentially, um, I'm inclined to agree. I think the audiobooks are the way to go. And you know, there's a, a new Jack Reacher book coming out later this year because they're annual. And from what I can tell, it's probably the first audiobook that he won't have read and I'm going to be kind of devastated <laughs> when I get to it because um Dick hill like he, he lived in Michigan he was a community theater guy uh they started recording apparently uh, an audiobook company opened you know in the area and he started working that way and I just hadn't really thought about audiobook narrators as actors and it, that being a career that requires you know so much uh range and tact and be able to you know sell sell a story and sell a cast of characters all by yourself. It really is impressive stuff, and I know I, I just think that Dick Hill deserves to be in the conversation for best Jack Reacher actors, uh, even though we've never seen him. We've we only heard him, but he's been in my ears for you know dozens upon dozens of hours over the past few months, and I, don't know, I just want to say R.I.P. Dick Hill. I think he was an incredible actor, and I don't think anybody's going to ever play a better Jack Reacher than him.
0: Wow, yeah, that's an incredible tribute, Jacob. That's really uh lovely to hear and I'm sure, you know, anybody else who's listened to uh to those audiobooks would probably share this, the same sentiments based on, you know, what you're telling me here. Um it's really cool that Lee Child also like acknowledged him and sort of gave him that shout out that way as well. So, uh yes, RIP to to dick hill um okay so what have you ad- been actually like you know sitting down and reading uh you know with your with your eyes instead of your ears jacob I, I read two very different non-fiction books i read uh welcome to the circus
1: of baseball by ryan mcgee uh this is a book i kind of grabbed on a whim i was in my local bookstore is a uh, lark now georgetown texas like a uh, uh it's funny because georgetown is you know going through a transition period right now which we're, it's a traditional texas small town that's Becoming an Austin suburb, and you're starting seeing all these like uh, extremely Austin-esque shops and stores and restaurants opening up and doing battle with more traditional Texas area around them. And Owl is a super liberal, <laughs> LGBTQ-friendly, uh, woman-run bookstore in the middle of a town that 20 years ago that, that could not have existed. So shout out to Larkinow. Uh But yeah, when I, every time I'm in there, I try to buy something just to support them. And I saw this book called "Welcome to the Circus of Baseball," and something about it grabbed my attention and I read it very quickly. This is uh, ESPN journalist Ryan McGee's uh memoir of, of sorts about how in 1994 he's fresh out of college. He's trying to get a job in sports media and he's straight up is like bombs in the ESPN interview and he the one thing he can get is a uh summer long uh, internship for $100 a week uh at the uh uh at the Asheville Tourists a uh, baseball team, a minor league team in North Carolina. And his memoir uh, essentially is this Richard Linklater-esque uh, trip down memory lane as he talks about, you know, being an intern at a minor league ballpark in North Carolina and all the people he met and the, the the crazy stories he has. And there's no real driving narrative here. It feels like this guy just has these wonderful warm memories of working, you know, adjacent to a minor league ball team, you know, in 1994. And you can tell that he's been telling stories for years. They've been honed to the point where they're ready for print. And it's just this, it's a delightful read. He has so many fun stories about everything from uh, how the beer room operates, you know, in the concession stand, uh, how hot dogs are prepared, you know, nachos, all the food stuff, but also how the front office works, how you sell ad space in, in, you know, the program, um, how you interact with the players, uh, like the, how, how like that idea of, uh, how you audition people to sing to, to sing the national anthem hiring the uh, hiring and then dealing with the, the mascot actor which tries to be a bit of a creep uh, Just all <laughs> these dozens of odd characters like it, it really is a hangout book you feel like you really are just in 1994 in a simpler time you know uh uh just in an area where you know it's not like major league baseball people play, were being paid millions of dollars and there's like unlimited budgets this is a minor league ball where Every penny has to you know, be stretched as far as possible. And everybody's there because they love baseball. And they're not not there because it's the New York Yankees and they're being paid tens of millions of dollars. They're there because, damn it, I love playing baseball or I love being involved in baseball. And I just found the whole book to be like a warm bath. I found it to be so nice to read. Uh, and it definitely made me feel nostalgic for a time place and industry of which I have zero knowledge. So that <laughs> is uh, Welcome to Circuits of Baseball by Ryan McGee. Even if you're not a baseball fan, if you like just the idea of... of hanging out with folks in a different time and place. I, I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, that sounds great, man. And I, I never really thought about, especially like the behind the scenes stuff of that. I've been to like a couple of um, minor league baseball games, but like the auditioning, the, the um, national anthem singers and stuff, like I never really thought about the ins and outs of like how an organization like that has actually worked um, or, or actually works. So uh, yeah, that sounds fascinating. So welcome to the Circus of Baseball is the name of the book. Um, you've also been reading something else, so, Jacob. Tell me about that. I haven't finished this one quite yet. And in fact, it's funny enough,
1: uh, I read Welcome to Circus of Baseball because I left this book in my wife's car before she went on a, a trip to visit family. So I had to read something else. Uh, about <laughs> halfway through uh, the movies of the 50s, uh, sorry, said Hollywood in the movies of the 50s by Foster Hirsch. This is a massive book uh, about, it essentially tries to reclaim the narrative of what a 1950s Hollywood film was. And Foster Hirsch is a veteran writer and biographer of Hollywood history. And he's also uh, in his 80s, and he was alive in the 50s and watching films in the 50s. And he says, I watched stuff in the 50s, and the way people have treated this decade of film is inaccurate and incorrect, and I want to reclaim it. Uh, which makes him a really interesting authority on this. And the book is not like, and then this happened, then this happened. It's not like you know, 1951, 1952, 1952 1953. It goes by subject. It goes by, you know, the first section uh, breaks down. The history of each studio one at a time. Here's what Paramount did in the '50s. Here's what Universal did in the '50s. And the next section uh, would cover, you know, here are what the prestige films were of the '50s. Here's what the the schlock and the horror films were of the '50s. Uh, there are chapters dedicated to all the various fads like uh, 3D and the various widescreen formats and all the uh, all the you know all these all uh, ways in which Hollywood tried to battle television. Each of them each of them get a chapter, and you know some of them are really interesting because certain fads you know end up becoming part of the hollywood norm and others didn't and he has a critical eye like he'll, he'll he'll not just relay the history he'll talk about here's why this movie works here's why this one is interesting here's a forgotten film I'm going to spend three pages describing why this film uh you know is an overlooked you know masterpiece or an overlooked uh curiosity that is to find something that we don't talk about uh occasionally he gets on old man high horse occasionally you know he'll say something that makes me roll my eyes really, really hard like yep spoken like somebody who's in his 80s uh but I found this to be really invaluable, and the fifties are so often written off. Uh, I think in a lot of uh, film history because the forties, you know, saw you know this post World War II rise of film noir and uh, uh, and just all these interesting actors and filmmakers coming together. And then the sixties were such a uh, knee jerk reaction to the fifties that uh, leading into seventies of the new Hollywood stuff. The fifties often get written off as this bland, desperate, sweaty time where Hollywood was chasing fads chasing 3d uh chasing you know new widescreen formats and it's trying to make you know giant um event films uh to for mass audiences instead of uh to try to battle tv at all costs and this book says that is all true but the filmmaking is really interesting and here's why these fads were more interesting why technology is important to understand and why this decade is a really vital piece of understanding film history. Like I said, it is utterly massive. It, it reads a bit scholarly. It, he does not have a casual tone. It definitely reads like you're textbooking at times. But if you're like me and you love film history and love you know the ins and outs of studio politics and actors, but also you know film criticism, like he's not shy about sharing his opinions and really diving into the artistry of these films as well, uh, I'm finding it to be really invaluable. And definitely... If his goal was to make me reevaluate how I thought about 50s Hollywood, then yeah, a mission accomplished. So that is a Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s by Foster Hirsch.
0: Okay. Uh, I actually have a movie to talk about from the 1950s. So that will be a nice transition there. Um, let's take a quick break, though, and then we'll be right back. All right. So one of the things that I've been watching, Jacob, is a movie called Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which came out in 1958 uh, this movie has an incredibly small budget. I think you know it ranges somewhere between sixty-five and eighty-nine thousand dollars, according to Wikipedia. Um, so yeah, not very much at all. And uh, I had never seen this movie before. I've seen the poster. If you you know it, the poster has appeared in a bunch of other movies, and you've probably like the poster feels. I know you hate the word iconic, Jacob, but it, it does feel kind of like an iconic movie poster. So well, that's
1: not everybody I, knows that poster. I have seen that poster. I have not seen this film. But I can describe that poster like to you right now, like in detail if I need to. it's a great poster,
0: yeah, it's terrific. um the movie is fascinating. it's like just over an hour long, and it is because the budget is so small, the idea of this this what the poster is selling this this fifty foot woman attacking a city or whatever um, is basically minimized to just a couple of minutes of actual screen time as you might expect from a, a movie with a budget this small. Um, but the drama that fills the rest of the movie I found to be pretty interesting. It's um it's basically about this woman who has fifty million dollars. She's a an heiress of a you know some sort of family fortune or something, and she her husband is like a real trash heap. He's just like a guy who does not care about her at all. And he has, is like sleeping around and specifically with like the the uh, Wikipedia refers to her as the town floozy, this character named Honey Parker. Um, and so the, the two of them are sort of off in a bar most of the time. And, and this main uh, woman is like kind of um, struggling with like mental health issues. And she comes across as she's driving away from from this uh, bad experience she's had with her husband. She comes across a um, a floating orb in the sky that that blocks the road uh, where she is, and there like a giant uh, alien sort of emerges from it and um, eventually she comes actually like in physical contact with this thing and and sort of like becomes a giant S herself uh, and it tries to, um, I don't know, it, it enact her revenge on her cheating husband is, is basically the the quick log line there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it sort of, it, it surprised me a little bit because I've seen a handful of these 1950s sci-fi movies that are like super cheesy because the effects are not great. And you know, th- there's a lot of like B movies that come out of this period that are kind of famous or infamous for, how, um, you know, you can still see the wires and and the strings and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know, I, I found myself kind of like suck, more sucked into this than I have been for some of those other, um, I guess you would call them B movies from, from that period. So uh, I would recommend checking this out. The reason that I watch this, Jacob, is because um, as we talked about on yesterday's podcast, Tim Burton is about to remake uh, this movie with Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, uh, writing the screenplay. So I was just curious, like, Okay, this is a good example for me to, to dive in and check out the original. Um, it does not f- really feel like a Tim Burton, uh, like a perfect fit for for the his sensibilities to me. But um, maybe more so Gillian Flynn. So I'm curious to see what that ends up being if that project indeed does come to fruition ever. So I would love for Tim
1: Burton making that a good movie, uh, like before before he retires or ends his career. I would like to see an, one more good Tim Burton movie. And maybe Gillian Flynn can give him a smart enough screenplay. I, I don't know. I mean, she's she's certainly such an interesting talent. And I think yeah. if anybody's going to take some material and push it in a really dynamic direction, it's her. But I know you probably talked about this on the podcast yesterday. I, I haven't listened yet. I apologize. But I just I have no faith in Tim Burton in the year 2024. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he hasn't really given us uh, much reason, but um, you know, we'll see, fingers crossed. Uh at least the original movie's interesting, so there's that. Um I watched another movie called Love Crazy from 1941. This is one of the many uh, pairings of William Powell and Myrna Loy who starred in the Thin Man series together. Um this one is about uh the two of them playing a married couple. They're celebrating their fourth wedding anniversary and uh, Myrna Loy's character's mother shows up out of nowhere and really kind of puts a damper on their um, anniversary plans first of all, just a like psychotic behavior to show up on somebody's anniversary uh, like you know it's their anniversary you're just like inviting yourself to the party like true psycho stuff right there um, but uh, yeah th- basically that this movie love Crazy is a comedy of errors where um, the mother-in-law, he overhears a conversation and thinks that she hears something that that's a little bit more scandalous than it actually is. And things just spin so out of control that uh, this mother-in-law basically um, kickstarts this entire series of events where the couple, the the main couple is split up and uh, the husband is still desperately in love with the wife, but um, there are all these lies upon lies that, that get sort of, uh, stacked on top of each other and then eventually the husband ends up like in a sanitarium because his his own uh, mental health is called into question and the wife thinks this whole thing is a big joke and he's just trying to do all of this to like basically get attention to get back with her and uh it just yeah continues to spin out of control so it's it's um <laughs> You know, I, I would not call this a uh, a grounded movie in any way, um, and it's not really one of my favorite Powell and Loy uh, combo films, but, uh, you know, it's, I guess it has a couple moments, but I, I would really maybe recommend staying away from this one. It came out in 1941. It's called Love Crazy. Uh, not really one of my favorites, so I um, just wanted to mention that, and then uh, I caught up with the new Mr. and Mrs. Smith show on uh, Amazon Prime Video. Have you seen any of this yet, Jacob? Are you interested in the show? No, I'll be perfectly honest. This is one of those things where
1: uh, I can't be bothered. And I feel really bad because I like some of the people involved. I like Don Glover and Maya Erskine, but it's, I, just something about this just, I I don't want to say repelled me, but I could not work up any enthusiasm for it. I'm hoping you can change my mind right now.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Well, I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that it's an Amazon show. Like I know you watch Reacher, so that's an Amazon series, but, um, I don't know that the whole thing about them, you know, it's eight episodes long this season of television and they dropped the whole thing at once. So that automatically I can understand kind of putting some people off because it feels like a chore to watch the whole thing or like try to speed through watching it without being spoiled or anything like that. So it's kind of like an annoying way to, uh, release, um, episodes of this show when like, it's not Netflix. You don't have to do this. They could have easily rolled this out, uh, at least if not week by week, then in like a here's the first three and then go week by week after that, which I think they've done before with shows like The Boys and stuff. So I'm kind of annoyed with the way that they're, they've are they decided to handle rolling this out. But um, I found the show to be really enjoyable for the first four episodes and, and then the back half kind of lost me a little bit. I mean, I I still ended up liking the show overall. I want to be clear about that, but like I was really like full on in love with it for the first half. And then it kind of, um, it it slid. It took like just a little bit of a dip uh, in, in the back half, but um, man, Donald Glover and Maya Erskine are so good together. And I just think this movie is like, or this, this series is a really, really interesting sort of inversion and spin on the Doug Lyman movie from 2005. They, they, do a lot of like different stuff here it does not feel just like a cheap uh remake it really feels like um donald glover and francesca sloan the the co-creators of the show are doing that thing that i love where filmmakers use ip to smuggle in their own ideas and this is much more of a, um, a nitty-gritty relationship drama than it is a spy show it's, it's much more about the relationship between these two characters and uh, what it feels like to be in those early stages of falling in love and then having, you know, as, as a relationship evolves and sort of like maybe coming to certain disagreements with your partner about um, major life events and like how you handle those. And uh, there's just a lot of like real genuine humanity on display in the show um, in, in a way that I was not expecting for a show that uh, you know, it's trailer is like this international globes, globe globe uh, trotting kind of thing where um you know, there's a lot of action and explosions and stuff like that. And there are, but I think much more of the show and and the the real heart of the show is much more about like quieter moments that happen, like in between the big missions or whatever. Um, so I, I would recommend it for that, Jacob. And I think you might connect to those moments. Um, you know, if you're interested in this at all. So, uh, that's Mr. And Mrs. Smith, all eight episodes are up on prime video right now. Um, and I would say it's worth watching. I just, I personally, I don't know, maybe the, the, uh, Back half of the of the series um as as the relationship uh, begins to fray a little bit um kind of felt a little bit more like a downer to me, but uh the the guest cast the cameos and stuff that they have in the show is like second to none it's It's unbelievable that the amount of uh, high quality sort of like a list people that they got to show up in this thing um and that's uh that was really enjoyable to watch as well so that's mr and mrs smith
1: so uh, I, do, I do like the doug Lason a lot. Uh, For the record, I just want to say that I do think the uh, original movie is extremely entertaining. So I I guess I'll check this out at some point, but I I can't say I'm going to rush just yet.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. Uh, I just I really like Donald Glover a lot. So having Atlanta... with the fact that that show ended recently, I was just like very excited to see him on my screen again. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge was originally supposed to co-star in this with him. And I was excited about that iteration. And and I love Pen15, which is the show that Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle uh, created for Hulu. And so I was excited for her to step in, but I was wondering sort of like if, if it was going to be like a quote-unquote downgrade, but I really don't think it is. I think she has an incredible energy and the two of them have like amazing chemistry. So um, it's definitely worth watching for that. Uh, True Detective Night Country, have you watched any of, wh- where do you stand on the True Detective um, mythos at large, Jacob? Have you checked out all those seasons? Or are you uh, a True Detective neophyte? Where do you stand on that? True, True Detective season one is some on of the best TV I've ever seen. I think it's perfect.
1: I think it's incredible. I think it's bizarre, strange, funny, horrifying, uh, addictive. I've watched it through several times. Season two is a debacle, a disaster, and one of, the, uh, one of my favorite bad things ever made on, on TV. I, I, I adore season two for all the wrong reasons. And season three <laughs> is perfectly respectable. Um, but not, not, not much more than that. Uh, I have not watched Night Country yet. I've been helping organize the coverage on the site. Uh, I, I, it's one of those cases where I've been so busy helping us cover it that I haven't had a chance to check it out myself, which is like the curse of my job sometimes. But I do love Issa Lopez. I love her uh, her her, her uh, feature film. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the title of it, Ben. Um, I want to say maybe. it was called um, "Tigers Are Not Afraid." Is that right? "Tigers Not Afraid." Yeah, it's uh, that's a yeah, it's a really wonderful little uh, fantasy horror film. So uh, I'm I, I decided after point I'm going to just binge this all when it's out. Oh, it's, the season's almost over? Um, and based on slash film teams, uh, response to it, it seem it sounds like it's up my alley. I think it's a like it return to the, uh, horror roots of season one, which
0: always appealed to me. Yeah, definitely. It, it a hundred percent has that season one flavor and I like it. Um, I mean, n- maybe not quite as much as season one because season one had that shock factor of like, you know, being one of the first shows out of the gate to really introduce TV stars back into like mainstream sort of prestige dramas like this in a big way, um, and there was just yeah the the McConaughey of it like just loomed so large in terms of like the um, you know I had never seen a character like Rust Cole on TV before, uh, and Jodie Foster is doing incredible work here. Uh, I think her name is Kaylee Reese is the the co lead as well. She's awesome. Um, I, I really, really, really am digging this show. I think the um, first three episodes are fantastic. The fourth episode, which just aired recently, uh, felt a little bit like maybe not wheel spinning, but like approaching wheel spinning. And there's only six episodes. So I'm I'm hoping that they're able to sort of like Issa Lopez is able to sort of shift things back in gear as, as we head into those final two episodes. Um, but man, I, I'm just like fully on board for what they're doing here and the whole vibe. And like, it's just, uh, yeah, just really, really incredible stuff. So, um, like addicting and, you know, it's one of those shows where my wife and I are just like, man, I, I wish that there was another episode out right now so we could watch it like right this second. It's, it's one of those, uh, it gives me that feeling, which is rare for a TV show these days. So, uh, true detective night country, the fifth episode, just, a, a um, I guess like a, a public service announcement. Here is going to be streaming on Max this coming Friday night. I think it's at nine PM Eastern, um, because the normal episode comes out uh, during the Super Bowl, basically on on HBO. And I think the. The HBO linear premiere is still going to happen on Sunday night. But if you don't want to be competing with the Super Bowl, you can check out the upcoming episode on Friday night on on the Max streaming app or whatever. So uh, check that out. Um, okay, Jacob, what have you been watching?
1: Uh, I've been watching Avatar The Last Airbender, not the Netflix live action show, which which people aren't allowed to talk about yet. So not breaking any embargoes there. But the Nickelodeon animated show that ran for three seasons uh, in the, in the mid 2000s. I know people who swear by this show, uh, formerly of Slash Film and still a good friend of the site, uh, Hoi Ho- Uh This is one of her favorite things ever. Uh, she talks about it all the time and uses characters as reference points. We talk about other things. Uh, so I do at some point need to watch it. And with the live action show coming out, I think it's time to finally give this thing a shot. And uh, Ben, after our last Airbender, it's a really, really good show. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised by how much I like it. I thought for sure I would, this would be a. I thought my thought might actually be, this is a pretty good kid show. And people who enjoyed it when they were younger, you know, were, were right to enjoy it, but no, it, it actually holds up really, really well. And the early episodes have, you know, a rougher animation and are clearly, you know, playing for maybe younger kids, but the, the, the series quickly gains like serious confidence. Uh, and by, you know, maybe episode eight or nine, uh, the world building has gotten so rich. The characters have gotten so interesting. Uh, and the animation like gets better by leaps and bounds. It looks so beautiful. Uh, like by the midway point of the first season that I I it's like going back looking up to one I'm like oh wow yeah they figured some stuff out they like really got this going uh and it's kind of not surprising to look at one of the key directors in season 1 uh is Dave Filoni mm-hmm. uh who was then poached by George Lucas to go work on Star Wars uh presumably based on his work in the season because his episodes are extremely well directed uh but the whole season I've seen all of season 1 I've not seen season 2 and 3 yet uh really impressed me and I really enjoyed it and not just in a, Oh, this is good for a Nickelodeon show or good for a kid's show kind of thing, but in a Oh, this is a legitimately good animated show. And I remember I watched the M night Shyamalan live action film in theaters and all the people I know who knew that the animated show were so devastated by that film. And looking back at that film, I now understand, Oh yeah, this isn't just a bad movie. It's a truly deplorable adaptation. It really sidesteps everything that made <laughs> the series magical and special. And watching the trailers for the Netflix show makes me gives me that same vibe. Like there's stuff in the animated show that is so specifically animated. Uh this world and the way characters move and interact with that world feels like built for animation. The same way that some stories feel built for comics or some stories feel built for a certain medium. I don't think this world can exist in live action in a way that's gonna satisfy anyone. So I'm really, really glad I'm watching the animated show now before I see more of the live action series because I have zero faith in that show being any good now that I've seen what accomplished in animation, because it's, it's, it's a, you know, round peggy square hole type situation. I, I think that this feels like a perfect thing made in the format that allows it to excel. Uh, Ben, have you seen any of the original animated show?
0: I have not, and I've heard so many people recommend it and say it's incredible, and now your voice is being added to that chorus, so I'm really going to have to like bump this up closer to the top of my list of things to check out. Um, I feel like it's one of those shows that like I'm probably just going to have to like watch, you know, I don't know, on my off hours or something. Like, you know, wake up early one day and and like check out a couple episodes here and there or something. I'm not sure I'll be able to fit it into like my typical um, like rotation of TV watching, but I've heard so many good things over the years that like I finally need to just uh, bite the bullet and check this thing out. Yeah, I, I
1: like the, the first few episodes are like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. This is a good kids show, but then then I it got got hooked got hooked to me. At a point where, where I was like, "Oh man, this stop being a good kids show and start being a good show." So, um, like I said, don't don't like the episodes only only twenty two minutes long. So I'd recommend you know giving a few of them a shot. It's not a, i it's not going to win you over instantly, I don't think. But okay, I, I will say um, one thing I, I do appreciate is the four main characters are all kids, and they're written to be actual kids. Like the personalities are written to be people who they feel like actual teens, and I i I try to realize that so many kids shows so many animated shows that have characters between the ages of you know 11 and 15 who are, which are the ages of these characters um treat them like miniature adults a lot of the time and it's really satisfying to watch a show where the characters all act their age in a realistic way despite it being a fantasy show i just want to shout out the character writing and how i think they, they captured youth really well in this show Excellent. Okay. Are you watching that on uh, Paramount Plus? Is that where it's available right now? Uh, actually, I've been watching it on Netflix. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, it may be available on Paramount Plus since it's a Nickelodeon show, but uh,
0: Netflix is where I've been watching it. Okay, cool. Uh, you also caught up with, uh, what, Edge, Edge of Tomorrow? Is this the uh, the Tom Cruise movie? Let's add this to our doc because
1: you talked about Mr. and Mrs. Smith and, and director Doug Lyman And I just want to say that this movie popped up on Max. I hit play on it because how could you not? And Edge of Tomorrow is one of those movies where we all watched it and enjoyed it 10 years ago. Uh, and now we're at a point where I think I can safely say this is probably one of my favorite films of all time. There's no longer the stigma of this can't make my top 10 list because it's not important enough or whatever bullshit we apply to our you know end of year lists. Edge of Tomorrow is an all-timer,
0: maybe may my favorite Tom Cruise movie, Ben, and easily my wow. favorite movie. Man, yeah, that's great. I mean, I remember loving this when it came out. And there's just been so much talk of a potential sequel that it feels like this movie has never left my life, even though I think I've only seen it (laughs) the one time in theaters. And I I don't think I've ever rewatched this. But uh, it seems like a movie that I would really actually um, enjoy on on rewatch because... Uh, you know, it, it's got the time loop thing. So the, like, there's got to be like so many more details that you probably pick up along the way uh, on a second watch. Um, did you, how many times do you think you've, you've seen this, Jacob? Is this one that's like been in your life for a long time? Yeah, this is a movie that it's been
1: on rotation. I put it on pretty frequently. It's maybe about a year since I last we watched it, so which is why I'm bringing it up again. Uh, but it, the, the Blu-ray got constant play uh, in, uh, in in my house for quite some time. And it it holds up so well the scrutiny. It holds up the repeat viewings. And uh, Tom Cruise is so funny in this movie. I think not not enough films let Tom Cruise be funny. And he's really funny here. Um, But I think everything about this film is pretty much perfect. Like it's it's grown to be a perfect movie for me. Like 10 out of 10, no notes type film. And I'm very glad.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Edge of Tomorrow. All right. Check that out on Max. Uh, You also caught up with The Beekeeper, the Jason Statham action movie. What did you think about that one? okay all right um i'm really on
1: board with this movie as a premise uh it wants so bad to be john wick man it wants to be john wick so bad Mm -hmm. Uh, but whereas john wick's world building and and odd characters and details feel really thought out and make sense uh the beekeepers do not uh i think this movie just feels uh, the world building for example is just really half-assed uh like keep on establishing all these like organizations and, and groups and antagonists who are just who exit in the plot so quickly that they don't really matter? And I'm like, okay, well, that was just a weird little thing. Why did that happen? Um, so it, it has this really clumsy um, sense of uh, trying to build a John Wickian world that never quite uh, congeals, and that would be okay if director David Ayer brought like brought uh, any kind of like real enthusiasm to the action. And I'm just, I feel like it's, it's really lacking here. And David Ayer is a really inconsistent filmmaker. But at his best, he he can be really nasty and mean and uh, have, craft action that like is really splattery and hits hard and gross, uh, and everything about the beekeeper feels really anemic. Like it, it's weirdly bloodless, like literally bloodless. I feel like for, for for an R-rated action movie like this, and none of it hits hard, and it just feels. I feel like it's pulling its punches and. and all the key ways. There's a, there's a big late in the film reveal about who the real villain is. And I was so excited. I thought, Oh my God, they're gonna go there. And then they pull it pulls that punch in the in the last scene. And I'm like, man, it it it, it threatened to be really like like wild for a second before it yeah. to,
0: you know i think you know the twist i'm talking about right ben? i do yes yeah. yeah and and i wish that they would have yeah had the courage of their convictions to actually stick with that um i i actually found the the violence to be like more gory and sort of visceral than some of the stuff that you know some of the the contemporary movies like this like the part where the guy gets his fingers chopped off with a saw and then like the um the, i think one one guy gets like stabbed in the throat with a pipe or something i, I just remember being like oh man like david there is actually like like tweaking these uh, these shots to actually like have some some impact on like the actual um you know like on, on the actual the hits of them if that makes sense but uh, but I think overall um, the action is not great in this movie. so I will agree with you on that front. Yeah. Jason
1: Statham innocent though I, I I've yet to see a Jason Statham movie where I think he's phoning it in. Uh, I think he's the most consistent action actor of the past 20 years maybe uh, whether he's in like a massive big budget you know fast and furious movie or a really small, like dirt cheap, you know, uh, like not quite indie, but not quite, you know, massive uh, action movie. Uh, I don't, even when he's kind of playing the same archetypal thing he does most of the time, I don't think Jason Statham has ever not shown up and he does what he can here. And I, 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 I think I'm Jason Statham. I'm a big Jason Statham fan at this point. Like I, I just feel like I, I, he's always going to bring his a game even to a, a C movie like the beekeeper, Ben.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I like that. Jason Statham, innocent. That's good. Uh, okay. And then there's one more thing you wanted to talk about, right? Real briefly. Uh, have you watched the game show, the floor? I have not.
1: Okay. This is a uh, Rob Lowe hosted uh, game show. <laughs> Cause Rob locally needs the work. Uh, I watched it on Hulu and it's weirdly addictive. And the idea is that I think there's 81 uh, players all on this giant digital screen divided into squares, and each square represents their field of knowledge, like technology or um, American history or best picture winners of the Oscars or The Simpsons or uh, what was it like? Like all these like famous animals. Like somebody they bring to the game their speciality, and then uh, somebody is randomly selected and they have to challenge one of their neighbors and they challenge one of their neighbors in their expertise. So, somebody whose expertise is uh, foreign foods challenges somebody whose expertise is cars and they do a quick round of trivia and the person who loses is out the person who won absorbs their space and takes over their speciality and so uh essentially becomes this area control game where you're expanding your territory across the board and more and more people are being kicked off the board as the territory starts getting like absorbed and like people who become like really good at the game will take over like you know 10 12 15 squares and have more options as to who they want to go after but also are more open to attack from other players you want to come in and you know and uh challenge them to get their territory back so it ends up being this uh essentially what if a trivia game show was also risk
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. that's what i was gonna say it sounds like a really interesting combination of those
1: two things yeah it, it, it is hokey and the trivia is very easy like watching it at home i'm like uh, these like they're very visually different questions like the, the questions are usually i'm questions they're uh, like here's a picture of somebody who um, named this person or here's a scene from a movie, name the movie. And I wish the questions were tougher. I wish they uh, were, were more challenging. They're clearly shooting for, you know, a very, very mainstream wide audience to play along with home. This is not Jeopardy. You know, this is not meant to like, um, you, know, you know, give you any kind of trivia challenge really. But the uh, fun of watching people try to hold on to their territory from episode to episode and choose when to go on the attack, when to go on the defense, uh, it has been really fun. And it's really, really good. Um, you know, it's been a long work day. time to eat dinner. It's putting something stupid and simple, kind of watching. And I'm really enjoying the floor. God help me, uh, I, I recommend it.
0: <laughs> I love I love sending our audience out with those words. God help me. I recommend it. That's fantastic. Uh, Okay, so that's The Floor, and you're watching it on Hulu. Um, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about almost all the things that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. I will link to some of them in the show notes as well. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the uh, the great features that you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slash Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't done that yet. That really does help us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.